This program was produced at KUSP Central Coast Public Radio and KUSP.org. Welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And uh, to lead off today's show, I thought I'd do something a little different. That is, give you a moment of silence. Okay, that was a little awkward, at least for me. It's hard to stay mum in situations where speaking is the norm, like uh, radio talk shows. And uh, I managed to shut up there for, what, all of seven seconds or so? So imagine holding your tongue for years. In 1973, on a whim, John Francis stopped speaking for a day. At least it was supposed to be a day, but he liked the experience so much, he stayed that way. And he'd already given up using cars and other motorized vehicles for environmental reasons. So there he was, walking everywhere and not talking, not a word. Over the next 20-some years, he logged thousands of miles on foot and in silence through Northern California, the Pacific Northwest, and across the U.S. And while it might seem that John Francis was the ultimate dropout, he was actually very engaged during those years. He earned his bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees, all without speaking. He advocated for environmental causes and even got himself uh, an important government job in Washington, D.C. as an environmental analyst. He painted, developed his self-taught banjo skills, and kept a journal that provided material for his memoir, Planet Walker, which was recently published by National Geographic. And he got to know a side of himself and this country that a lot of us seldom see. By putting himself in a position where he was utterly dependent on the kindness of strangers, he discovered that there is kindness out there in abundance. Well, eventually John decided it was time to start talking again, which is a good thing for radio interviewers like me, Though, as I found out with my first question, he can still get along quite nicely without speech. Um, when you spent those nearly two decades not talking, you got very good at communicating, uh, using your own sort of made-up sign language, pantomime, yeah? Yeah, yeah, I did. Can you answer, try to answer a question doing that for me? For the radio? Yeah, and I'll, <laughs> I'll describe it. Oh, okay. Yeah. What's your question? Um, what kind of child were you? Small. Holding your fingers to indicate small. Eyes wide open toward the sky. A dreamer. A thinker looking for something. Searching. Curious. You're making gestures of, of looking and questioning. You just picked something up and you're wondering what it is. Gestures of, of surprise and gestures of discovery of uh, exploring the world. Did I get it? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I want you on my team. <laughs> well, you know, in reading your, your book and in hearing how you got along, in all kinds of situations, some uh, undoubtedly involving all kinds of difficult communications, um, never talking, but always uh, always getting your point across, it seems. I, you know, I thought you must have a special gift, and, and now I've seen it for myself. Yeah, it always takes two. <laughs> That's the gift to understand that it really does take two. And even though you may think you have something to say, if the other person can't understand it, then what is the communication? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When you uh, decided to stop talking, and, and your father... Um, discovered this and was really skeptical. You told him you did it to stop telling lies. Well, that was one of the reasons that I continued not speaking. And when I first started to to stop speaking, it was just for planning on just for one day. It was to celebrate my birthday and I was going to not speak for a day and that was going to be the end of it. But I started learning a, about communication and that one of the things it was uh, was that I hadn't been listening, and listening is a is a very important part of communication. So um, that took me into another day. Uh, well, I could learn something, and I'd hear things that I didn't necessarily hear before, which was I, I thought maybe that's what learning is: is that getting messages that you haven't heard before, and then 
the difficulty of actually telling a lie when you're not speaking uh, seemed very compelling to me. <laughs> and I used to do that all the time, you know, um, exaggerate, let's say. You know, it's yeah. a nice way of saying it. Like, like, like what? Well, you know, I mean, people would ask you what you're doing, and you could say, well, man, I have a big record deal coming up, you know. Um, they said, well, on what? I didn't know you play an instrument. You didn't know that I played the uh, banjo. Well, I wouldn't have a banjo with me, and so I could, you know, explain, oh, yeah, man, I've been playing the banjo for, you know, years. I mean, it's really good. Um, or just things like that, mm. you know, mm. um, that things that you think are going on or you would like to have go on, you say them as if they're happening. And <laughs> it may not be true. <laughs> it's just you're wanting something to be true in order to put yourself in, in a certain light and not speaking made that very difficult because I just found myself, well, this is just who I am right here. You can see and you can hear me play the banjo and it's that's exactly how it sounds. Talking is the way we build ourselves up. Talking is the way we um, try to make fantasies real. That's not the only thing we do with speech, mm. um, but we can. We can hide from ourselves and hide ourselves in, in our speech. But, I mean, it's a wonderful tool. It's a wonderful gift. And um, I just decided that maybe I should not use it for a while in order to learn to appreciate it. Mm. Mm. When your dad sort of learned all this, I mean, he learned this by paying you a visit where you were living in Inverness mm -hmm. in uh, mm -hmm. 1972? Yeah, and, and, and right about, nine, well, after 1973, after I'd stopped speaking, because okay. I stopped speaking on my birthday in 73, and I, you know, I wrote my parents and said, you know, um, I'd already called them and said that I wouldn't be coming out to Philadelphia because I didn't ride in motorized vehicles. And then I wrote them and said, well, you know, I won't be calling you because I stopped speaking and I'm not going to speak at least for a year. And my mother wrote me and said, your dad's going to be on the next plane, you know. What are you doing? They thought I had been taken over by some kind of religious cult in California, uh, which I, you know, could have been. <laughs> There's this uh, very, very uh, fun scene in your book uh, where your father shows up. I, I have to confess that I laughed, and, and I'd just like to read this one paragraph. Oh, you like should laugh. Oh, no, it was funny. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it was absolutely funny, and, and it, it gets even funnier. But go ahead. You read that he's a, one. He's, your, your dad... Um, is, uh, is, is calling home. He's calling Philadelphia. He's calling your mom uh, from a payphone. And uh, he's talking on the payphone. You can hear him from outside. Yes, I've seen him. He's standing right here. No, he seems healthy enough. He doesn't smoke and he doesn't drink, and people here seem to like him. At the door of the phone booth, I begin to play a nameless tune I have composed on the banjo. It is still raw and unsure. The notes topple from my fingers, and my father speaks loudly over them. Yeah, he paints and plays the banjo. The music annoys him. He shoos me away and closes the door. Now I can barely hear him, but I do, just enough to hear him say, I think we should just leave him here and hope that he doesn't show up in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll see you when I get back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. And, and then when, when I said it got funnier, I, I was alluding to that part. And he says, you know, um, yeah, this wouldn't work in Philadelphia. <laughs> I guess it wouldn't, you know. But, you know, that he said that, I'm like thinking... You know, how am I going to get out to Philadelphia now? <laughs> well, this is 1973. And your dad, I mean, you came out to California. You must have thought, oh, my son is just a hippie, crazy something or other. Yeah? Mm, yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, back in Philadelphia, um, my family, and I, and I wrote about this in the, in the book. I, didn't, I don't think I went as far um, as to say that, well, my mother would say that, she hadn't seen me for a while, and people said, "Well, well, you haven't seen him, and why is that?" And she go, "Well, because he stopped riding in motorized vehicles, which is, you know, that's just unheard of in in uh, Philadelphia. Even though in Pennsylvania, you know, there are the Amish. This mm -hmm. is, I'm definitely not Amish, you know, <laughs> and um, they would say, "Well, you've talked to him, though, right?" And my mother would say, "No." No, um, he's given up speaking, and so he has a vow of silence. He doesn't speak, and that, you know, how that would play in a you know a middle class you know African American family 
um, it, I don't think it does. <laughs> and so what would come out of their minds and their mouths would be, Java, you know, why do you have to say things like, you don't have to make things like that. He's in jail, right? He's in prison. <laughs> and um, she says, oh, no. She says, yeah, he's in prison, drugs, for drugs, right? He's in California. That's what's going on. And my mother's gone, you know, no, that's not true. You know, he doesn't ride in cars and talk. I mean, I wish he was in prison <laughs> for drugs. Then that would be perfectly explainable. <laughs> but he's not, you know. So um, there was that you know, funny part of uh, what I did that I could see that it was very difficult for people, particularly on the East Coast in, in my family, mm. to understand that. Mm. There's a, another um, scene in your memoir um, that uh, shows how far you were willing to push people's expectations. Uh, you were sitting in um, Inverness, where you lived at the time, in, mm -hmm. in Northern California, um, and a guy took a picture of you. You you cut a pretty picturesque figure in those days with your banjo. And I did. Yeah. <laughs> and, patched. Patched yeah. everything. Yeah, patched <laughs> clothes. And uh, who wouldn't want to take a picture of that? A guy took a picture of you. You didn't like your picture taken at that time. No, I didn't. I, I felt it was like, you know, stealing your soul, your spirit. And this I guy, must have gotten that from National Geographic, I'm sure. That. Where did you get <laughs> did that you idea? I don't know. I mean, it must have been watching those, you know, movies and things like that. Yeah, this guy happened to have a state car with a state license plate. So you took down the license plate number and you proceeded because you didn't drive. You didn't you didn't ride in cars or any other motorized transport to walk to Sacramento 100 miles from Inverness mm -hmm. and appear yeah. before some board of state officials yeah. to make your case that you should get that photograph back. I did. And I you did. communicated through a friend. You did sign language of various kinds. Yes. And she translated. It's so funny. I, that was like a, such a funny time. And I laughed at, the, at after that. But um, I was so shocked that this guy took my picture. And I, I went to my friend who was a, an attorney in town. And I explained to him what had happened. And he said, um, well, you know, he didn't know if any... Thing that he could do, but he did have a friend on the controller's board, uh, the state controller's board, and I could go and speak at a public meeting there, which the controller had nothing to do <laughs> with, you know, my photograph and this guy and the, you know, having a state car. And uh, so I did. I showed up there uh, after a hundred mile walk up the up to Sacramento in the summer. And um, I had a friend who met me who happened to be Native American. And I had been studying um, Iron Eyes Cody's book on Indian Sign Language. And I taught my friend Deborah these Indian signs, and she drove her car to Sacramento and met me. And, um, I mean, you could see people really put up with me <laughs> to do these things. Um, but we walked into the meeting, and... Um, Someone said, well, we have a guest from a, a visitor from Inverness, California, who has come to address the uh, the board. And uh, he doesn't speak, so s someone's going to interpret for him. And so I start my Indian sign language. You know, my my heart feels bad. And it's like you grab something out of your heart and you throw it down. That means bad. My heart feels bad. Um, my spirit, my spirit was a, a V that went up in, you know, circles like it was a, a, um, dust devil or a tornado. And that's a symbol for spirit has been taken, you know, <laughs> I snatched it out of the air in a little box as a camera. And, uh, my friend is, you know, repeating all of this and, um, everyone's mouth is open uh, on the board and they're looking at me and, uh, Finally, you know, I finish and uh, wanting my spirit back and the president of the board, um, you know, finally gathers his composure and he says, well, and he doesn't talk to me. He only talks to, to, to my friend. He says, will you please tell um, Mr. Francis that uh, we don't have a spirit, but if we get it. You know, we are going to send it back to him. 
And, you know, with that, you know, the meeting's over and we walk outside and I, I walk out into the street and I realize how funny that was. Explain this to me. You and I are both chuckling at the audacity, um, you know, and eccentricity of going before the state controller's board to get your picture and your spirit back and talking using Indian sign language. We're chuckling at it. You even laughed at it afterwards, but you were very serious at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, can you explain that to me, how you could do something that you even knew looked crazy to people and kind of was crazy in the sense of having very little chance of getting that photograph mm-hmm. back? Well, it's 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 very interesting, and and um, someone uh, at the time I I did it, I was absolutely serious. But there was also something else going on. There was something that I guess I would say I was angry, and and I just heard recently about you know anger, what can come of anger, and how we express it. It's like it's a, people say to me even today, well, John, you don't get angry. And I go, that's not true. Of course I get angry. It's what we do with the anger that I think is um, the, the, the goal of, of being human, you know, taking that anger. And so how can you use that to help um, turn things, change things, uh, and creatively uh, live your life? And I think that's what was going on, was that I was using that anger to do something. And I was very serious about it. But at the same time, after I, as I was doing it, looking at the situation and going, this is just hilarious, John. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> and, 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 and finding myself now on this path where I was a, you know, quote, environmentalist, mm-hmm. and I was going to be an activist, and, I'm, and that was what I was going to devote my life mm. into learning about what that meant and, and being that person. Mm. Um, I think we, we all meet people who um, we, we think of as acting strangely because they've got some mental illness, you know, they're delusional or something like that, and people who met you probably came to that conclusion from time to time about you. I'm sure. But to read your memoir and to meet you now, it's obvious you weren't in any way batty. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you were willing to do something that appeared crazy to people, and you were willing to take the kind of um, looks and reactions and all of that, you know, for a very long time. Was that something you just weren't concerned about at all, or was it something you had to constantly, you know, strengthen yourself against? You know, I'm not sure how I got to be that person that said, it's okay that you think I'm crazy. Um, I think being silent helped me because usually uh, when I would listen to someone would would say something to me like, John, you're crazy, or whatever they were going to say, I would think I knew what they were going to say before they finished saying it. Mm. And so I would stop listening to them and start thinking about what I was going to say back to defend myself, um, to let them know that I was smarter, to show them that I knew better, that they were wrong, all those kinds of things. And, And what I discovered in that process was that, um, I stopped listening and that ended communication and the idea of, well, wait a minute, John, why don't you really listen to what someone has to say? And they may say that you're crazy. You're going to have to listen to that. They may some say something else that you hadn't thought of. You need to listen to all of those things and you get to decide later, you know, after you heard what they said, how you feel about it. And so I, practice listening to people just because I was silent. Um, Not that I liked people to say I was crazy, (laughs) but that after a while, if someone said you were crazy, you know, I didn't feel like I had to say, oh, no, I'm not. Mm. Um, I just accepted that that's what someone said. Uh, I would think about what it was that they said, and and I would go on. Mm. Um, And so I think that... um, that stood me well. 
then I started going to school. And once I started going to school, you know, <laughs> then I became, I guess, more eccentric than crazy. Uh, that, oh, well, he just doesn't talk, but he does study and he does have a bachelor's degree. Of course, my dad would come out every time I finished school and say, what are you going to do with a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or a PhD or whatever it was? He would come out and say that. Um, what are you going to do with that if you don't ride in cars and talk? You know, I would hunch my shoulders and grab my banjo and go on to the next, you know, adventure. You you got a BA, an MA, and a PhD all while not talking. Yeah. Um, and at one point, University of Montana is where you got your MA mm -hmm. uh, in environmental science or environmental studies. Environmental studies, yeah. And you even taught a section of a class while not I did. talking. I did. I taught, uh, I had a um, discussion class and my professor said, you know, John, I'm sure you can do this. You know, you, you're the leader of this class. And so I had someone for the first day come in and interpret for me. So my friend who came in and she understood my sign language, which was a compilation of lots of different things. And, you know, said, this is, my name is John Francis. I'm your new TA for this um, semester. And uh, I I don't speak. I've taken a vow of silence and I don't ride in motorized vehicles. And um, I could just see everyone else in the class, their, their mouths are dropped open. And they're like looking down at their their schedules to see just how they can get out of this class. And and I knew that because I you know I'm a student as well and I'm they're going gosh and finally they figure out that they can't get out of this class because they have to take this section and um, <laughs> it was like that for you know the the first day but after that um, we really had a lot of fun uh, and I would make signs and they would all gather around and try to figure out what it was I was talking about. And um, I had little exams that we did, little quizzes before we went into the main body of the discussion. And it turned out that I, I had to really just, you know, keep people from arguing and fighting with each other. I mean, it was wonderful. There fighting was over the interpretations of what you were saying. Uh, right, yeah. You know, <laughs> fighting over the interpretations, fighting about what the class was about. I mean, it was just, it was a discussion. Uh -huh. And... Then students from the other sections heard about our section, and they wanted to transfer. And my students became very protective, and they said, oh, no, no, no. We don't want anybody else in our section. <laughs> because we, you know, they had their own thing, and so uh, we had our thing together, and that's how it was. And I got the highest evaluation that semester mm -hmm. for uh, as a TA's concern, you know. Well, I was noticing, you know, in, in, in starting this interview by asking you to to sort of sign or act out your, your answer, that it was really it was really fun to watch you do that and to uh, participate in that. So I can imagine the students having a lot of fun with that approach. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah. And focusing more than they would uh, to a voice droning on in front of a blackboard. Well, you know, after that got over the initial shock of having someone that's going to lead a class um, that doesn't speak, you know, then it became, you know, hey, <laughs> our TA doesn't speak and we all get to speak. And coming out of that class, I mean, I um, they would say things when I would make some signs and some things that were, you know, very close to what I would mean and uh, some things were so far away, but I should have meant. <laughs> it's like learning all the time. And I came away from that experience believing that if you were a teacher and and you weren't learning, then you probably weren't teaching very well. And so um, we are all students and teachers, and, and that's what I got from that experience. Mm -hmm. now, now, as we said earlier, you... Um you went through this period where you thought photographs were a bad thing, photographs of yourself, because they'd steal your spirit. Mm -hmm. You got over that, I guess. I did. Yeah. I did. Had to get over that. And, and, <laughs> and so on the um, jacket of, your, of the current edition of your book from National Geographic Press, there's a photograph of you. When was that taken? 
Um, that was taken just after I graduated from uh, Montana, University of Montana, and I was walking um, down the railroad tracks, uh, I think close to Salmon, uh, in Idaho. Uh-huh. And, You're on uh, these snow-covered railroad tracks. You're walking toward the camera. You're tall. You're handsome. You've got a beard. You've got a banjo. You're actually playing it. You look so romantic, like a figure out of legend, you know. Woody Guthrie or something like that. <laughs> did you have a romanticized image of yourself? I mean, in some ways, what you did seems like egoless, you know, very humbling. But was there a, also an ego part of all this? Like, Well, um, the, the first thing, I think that, that, that image is misleading. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was June. <laughs> it wasn't snow. <laughs> um, that was the sun reflected. <laughs> Off the rocks, <laughs> but okay. it does look like snow, doesn't it? It does look like snow. It's At, this print makes it look like snow. Yeah, yeah. and and I am. I'm walking down the railroad tracks, and I cut this romantic looking figure. Of course, my feet hurt, <laughs> you know, and my backpack is heavy. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, while I en- absolutely enjoy what I'm doing. You know, because it's it's what I do. Mm. Um, there are these moments. There's some moments where it's absolutely bliss. I mean, and if someone were to tap me on my shoulder, I might not be there. Mm. But there's some moments, probably more than that, which you are feeling every stone, <laughs> every ounce, every drop of sweat. I mean, you've it's all there, which is not a bad thing. It's a good thing, but I'm I'm not sure it's the romanticized, you know, kind of existence that a lot of people think. Because I had friends walk with me for a little bit, and I had a friend walk with me right after graduating from the University of Montana. And as we were walking, I always walk facing traffic. You know, I would wave to people, and. Uh, my friend said, that was a good idea. He would wave to people too. Well, not everyone waved back. <laughs> and my idea was that it doesn't matter if they wave back, but you want to recognize that there's someone coming toward you. You want to wave in, in case they didn't see you. <laughs> but it's a good, you know, just wave to those. And when they didn't wave back, my friend who was from New York, he would turn around and holler at them. Flip the bird to him. <laughs> I'm like going, no, no, man, it's not, it's not the deal. Here. He goes, yeah, I know, I know, but you know, I just, they should have waved to me, you know. And, and um, the other part of that is, uh, you know, walking through on highways where it's crowded and smoky, mm. and uh, what you have to do if you're going to walk across the United States, yeah. you have to get to those places that are not, I, you know, the idyllic out in the country wilderness place and uh, so there's a lot of that too america is not made for walking i mean a lot of america there's no sidewalks in a lot of places even where there should be uh i i would say just because who i am i guess america is made for walking yeah you think so (laughs) Uh, and and america is here for walking i think that you know all we have to do is start doing it Mm. and the more we do it the more we'll find that um, that it is still there. The it's, things you had to do, though, to to get from one place to another, when I say it's not made for walking, I mean pedestrians aren't mm-hmm. foremost in our transportation planners' minds. I absolutely there agree with you. There are bridges that can't be crossed by pedestrians by law. There are long stretches where you had to walk on highways and things like that, you know, that are really inhospitable to, to people walking. Mm-hmm. Um, you made yourself incredibly vulnerable. I mean, out there with nothing but a backpack, you know, in places that, that um, a lot of people would be scared to go, I think. And we should add that you're black, and you're walking through areas that are almost all Hey, white. wait a minute. I'm what? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is radio. I figured I had to say it. Um, and uh, but, but, I mean, you're walking in areas where uh, it's mostly white or all white, you know, the northwest you know, through the upper Midwest and on and on. A lot of places where, you know, some African-Americans wouldn't feel comfortable going. Um, And yet what's fascinating about your book, reading this whole 
um, you know, sort of saga, race is barely mentioned. It rarely, com- it almost never comes up. Was that the way it was? Well, <clears throat> in in the book, it it does come up in the book um, in the beginning. In the beginning, um, and uh, and because it comes up in the beginning, I in such a way that you can understand that it's you know it's throughout. Mm. But at the same time, to say that it's throughout is not to say that. Well, let's start pointing at all of the. Ah, no, come on. It's you know, it's America, and America still has issues, and and so we've already mentioned that, and uh, so we're going to go beyond that now. Let's go beyond that, and that's that's the idea in the book, and that's pretty much what happened to me. It only happened that incident, and there's another incident coming out of Montana where the sheriff doesn't want me to, you know, deputy doesn't want me to be. Uh, sleeping by the side of the road or by the little you know stream that i'm sleeping he wants to give me get me out of the county but um those are actually far between few and far between everything else that's happened and for some people maybe i was the the first and only african-american that they had had um close relationships with you know that someone I was asked to come to school to be show and tell because this guy had only seen African-Americans on television. Um, So even though uh, there were some incidents for 99%, I would say uh, it was, well, we're just all here together and your experience and what I was doing was more important than what I look like mm. and the, the color of my skin mm. and um, where I, how I was doing it was more seemed more important to people than uh, than race. Yeah, was that a surprise to you, or, or did you have no expectations in that way? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. I think first of all, uh, I had to get comfortable with being in a wilderness and. And being in my own skin. And once I became comfortable being me, then I didn't really look for anything else. I mean, I just was me, and I hoped people accepted me as that person. Mm-hmm. When I started reading, I was, you know, because America is so race conscious, I was on alert to see whether you would get a lot of grief from policemen or you know, rednecks or something. Um, another surprise in the book, aside from the fact that race doesn't come up very much after some opening incidents, which we'll get to in a second, is how nice the law enforcement people were to you in, in the stories in the book. In almost every case, there was the guy in Montana you just mentioned, but policemen, after finding out that you needed to get somewhere on foot, you know, saying, well, you know, this bridge, it's not legal to cross it, but there is a span that's under construction or under repair. Uh, if I turn my back, you can cross it and he let you go. <laughs> yeah. Or the California <laughs> Highway Patrol, you know, yeah. as I'm walking down the road with a banjo, there happens to be a banjo lover It's <laughs> who comes and he stops me and, and asks me, he says, I'm, I, I'm not here to hassle you. Don't be frightened. I just want to hear you play the banjo. And I played the banjo and the next thing I knew is that he had radioed <laughs> all of his, you know, his associates up and down the road and who were always coming. They were coming to ask me to play the banjo as well. So it was, you know, it was a very sweet moment for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. A, a shocker, I think, in some ways, because, you know, just walking uh, around looking a bit like a vagrant or a vagabond in your patched clothes would be enough to get, I would have thought would it be enough to get cops hassling you, but doesn't seem to have happened to you very much. Mm-hmm. I think it was the banjo. <laughs> very, very smart move. <laughs> I think it was the banjo. Um, there is one incident um, amidst a lot of really, really remarkably um, happy encounters with people. There is one that's really, really harrowing. And I, I was wondering if you would read that passage in your book. Um, sure. You were you were walking. This was before you started your journey across the country, but you were uh, doing a lot of walking in Northern California at the time, and you were walking north of Arena Point. Is that right? Yeah, close to Highway One, on the um, 
It's the high road. It's, okay. It, it parallels Highway 1. Kind of a frontage road or... Yeah, it's like a frontage road, yeah. but it goes up in the hills. Okay. So a, a pickup truck pulls over, two guys in it, mm-hmm. and they ask you where you're going. And if you could take it from there. Are you heading south? I nod yes and repeat the walking fingers over the hills. Only this time I grin. A grin is forming at the corners of my mouth. I'm not sure why, except I'm thinking maybe these guys are lost, and the thought is amusing. In fact, I know they are not lost. We are all where we are meant to be. I know this from the very core of my being as the driver's right hand comes up from beneath his seat, revealing the dark gunmetal of a forty-four revolver, the brow of which he places against my head. In this moment of crystal clarity, I recognize the face of death. He is like an old friend I had forgotten, but who is always there, always walking with me in the forest, over the mountains, over the hills, into the valleys, through the fullness of my journey, to when the tears flow from my eyes as unquestioned rivers. We don't like niggers around here, death says these words, but the words don't seem to matter. They are like a code that I have heard before but never understood. All that matters now is that we are here together. Click. He pulls the trigger and the hammer falls. I hear no explosion. My body does not slump to the asphalt road. My eyes are wide open, and I am looking past the gun into his frightened eyes. It happens so fast that I hardly realize the flash of light coming through. A rush of thoughts pass through me, but one gets stuck. You say there was a flash. Yeah. They pulled the trigger, or the guy did. There was a flash as we looked at each other. Oh. Yeah. But it was an empty gun. He was well, just trying to Well, it either misfired you. or it was empty. Um, and yet you at that moment, what are you experiencing? Well, you know, it was it was really funny, and I, I after I walked away, and I that's when I got I started shaking a little bit, but right up at that point, it was like, oh, I knew this guy. This is death. Death is always here, and death is. I mean, death is always here. But I recognized death in that moment, and um, I wondered if that this was when I was going to die, and. The only thought that went through me is like I said, one thought got stuck, and that was the one that, damn, I hadn't done my painting for the day. And I wanted to do a painting. I'd painted every day, and I wrote haiku, and and I hadn't done that today. So that's the one thing that I said, oh, I hadn't done my painting yet. (laughs) (laughs) That that incident... um, Now, that incident, I think, is everybody's, like, worst nightmare of what might happen if they start just you know, walking into the countryside, um, defenseless. Uh, it's also the worst nightmare of sort of racial hatred, you know? Um, but it didn't deter you at all. You just kept on. Well, uh, you know, and, and you, as you read further, you know, I had to go down and I got to highway one and then my friends were driving up, uh, highway one. And, and I, I thought about very seriously about getting in the car with them and, and, um, and being safe and going where they were going. And at the same time, realizing that that was going to be an illusion because death is going to come. I mean, you know, death is, and death isn't our enemy. Death is just part of being alive. And, um, and it took me a while to understand that because I, I went down by um, uh, the river uh, and I guess I was near Jenner, and this was Russian River, and I was there, and I was like thinking, uh, listening to the loon, and and letting that because sounds of nature have a way of of uh, healing us and giving us place, and um, and and then thinking about I could give this all up, but I would be afraid. And I would live my life like that. And that 
since I had found myself, I would rather live with that person that I had found and die with that person that I had found and live as not me. And so that became a very clear decision that I was going to just keep on mm. until I couldn't do that anymore. Mm. People have um, called you saintly sometimes. What? Yeah. <laughs> and I know you say in your book that, that that makes you cringe. But people see in, in you that um, what they think of as, as, as a kind of bravery and um, commitment, you know, that must be something more than human. You know, more than ordinary. It's always interesting when people say that, and I, because I think that I am ordinary. I am just a person, um, and that's what I think is so extraordinary: <laughs> is that we all are ordinary, and we all have these journeys and our own journey inside of us. Um, if we just find it, if we just let ourselves be who we are, because. Being who you are is the only thing, the only thing that we really get to do and, and be is the person that we are. And, and that, I think, once we do that, then extraordinary things get to happen. Mm. But we are just all ordinary people. Um, the only other time that, I'm, that race came up in the book um, is in the last part of the book when I am now with a PhD and I have started speaking and uh, I am being hired by the Coast Guard. Uh, the Coast Guard hires me. I'm in, oh, I think Vermont. And they say, well, we're sending you a ticket, Dr. Francis, to fly down on the plane. And I go, well, no, I actually I don't use planes and they said, you can take the train. And I say, well, actually, um, I, I don't take trains either. And Dr. Francis, you don't ride in cars either, do you? And I said, no, I don't. And they said, you know, we, we heard something about that. Um, how can you get here? They call me up the next day. And they said, our boss says we absolutely have to have you. So how can you get here? And I I say, well, I, I can ride my bicycle. And I could <laughs> hear the breathing on the phone. And he goes, well, and how long would that take? And I'm figuring out that it would take me about two months to get everything together. I say, we'll be waiting. And so I get to Washington, D.C., and I'm riding around after getting to the Coast Guard. And when working for the Coast Guard, I've been riding around for a while. And I ride up to Capitol Hill and I do meetings up there and I put my suit on and I take my suit off and I ride around. And I... Finally, one of the, the human resource person at the Coast Guard says to me, um, John, you know, we were really just, I'll have to tell you, when when you got hired and you were coming down here, all of us here, we just couldn't imagine. We were just waiting to see what this granola looked like. <laughs> You know, because we read all this stuff about you and you heard all this stuff. And when you got here, you know, we thought you'd be riding your bike for just a little bit. But when winter came, you were going to, you know, be on the metro with everybody else. And you no, know, that's not what happened. He says, you, he says, you are just someone we realized that that has um, ideals. And I said, yeah, you know, you're you're just an ordinary person with ideals. And I said, yeah. And he said, but you know what we didn't, we just, none of us could have expected. And we didn't. And I'm like, oh, well, what? He goes, you're black. I said, ah, oh, well, that's what has to change. And I think that is changing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, you know, there's many surprises in the book. Um, and that's another one that... You having taken such a um, um, unorthodox course, you know, one that you would think that would be appreciated by uh, alternative folks, but not necessarily by government bureaucracy, mm -hmm. get hired by this institution, the Coast Guard, to be an analyst. Uh, just to clarify, you had gotten your PhD at the University of Wisconsin with a dissertation about the impact of oil spills. And mm -hmm. the Coast Guard learns about this and knows that you know, they're trying to formulate oil spill policy, so they hire you as an analyst. And they're willing to take on a guy who doesn't use motorized vehicles. 
Meaning that if you go to a conference, if it's 100, 200 miles away, you're going to have to ride your bicycle. You know, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I and I do. <laughs> I mean, what a surprise, though! What a interesting thing that they were that uh, open-minded. You know, well, it, it was, and I, you know, I I mentioned that to the person who uh, who hired me, and uh, I have to say that the first thing is I wrote this dissertation, and it turned out that I was the only one in the United States who had been writing on oil spills when Exxon Valdez happened. Mm. And so um, I was the expert. I hate to use that word expert, but as far as the government was concerned, I was the expert on oil spills. And um, that they would learn that they, you know, that I didn't speak and I didn't ride in cars. Um, I wondered why this person uh, went ahead and hired me. And he says, well, um, John, you did have a PhD. <laughs> I said, yeah, I did. He says, well, I figured somebody must have thought that, that you knew something because last time I looked, they weren't giving him away. <laughs> you, uh, you actually began this journey, uh, not, not uh, riding in cars, not taking any kind of uh, powered vehicles, because of an oil spill in 1971. Yes. In San Francisco yes. Bay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and here you are, twenty some years later, hired to to work on oil spill policy for the Coast Guard. It's you know, it's one of those things that just absolutely um, tell me something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, either I'm I'm on the right path, I guess, or uh, you just never know what the future holds. Are, are you and, religious? You know, I would. I try to stay away from religion per se because so much of it seems to separate us. Um, I would consider myself a, a spiritual person um, if that is a way that would bring us together. And um, otherwise, if if that were a way to separate us, I would not say that, you know, as well. Um, but in the sense of... Uh, being a spiritual person and and that what I do is a spiritual practice, then I would say that. Mm. You remind me when you talk about your concern about not wanting to do something that divides people, that, and I want to reiterate if we haven't made it clear, that in this book, walking around all these years not talking, uh, you know, what some people would call a drifter if they saw you on the road, um, you encountered huge amounts of kindness from people. Mm. I mean, people are constantly giving you things. They're at, offering you their homes to stay in, offering you rides without your sticking your thumb out at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. A lot of us who have hitchhiked would be envious at the number of rides you got offered without even trying. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, some guy, I think in uh, Minnesota, in a pickup truck, pulls over, sees you, marches towards you, looking maybe a little menacing. Mm-hmm. And uh, you don't know what's happening, and he puts a hundred dollars in your hand and stalks away. Yeah, it says I've been looking for you for. Well, that's what he says. He's coming. He says, I've been looking for you for a whole week, because as I'm walking, their radio is mm. reporting that I'm walking, and and I'm going, uh oh, you know, <laughs> what did I do now? And he just wanted to he he wanted to give me a hundred dollars and tell me how much he appreciated what I was doing for. Mm him and the rest of us. Mm. I said, well, I nodded my thanks. Why do you think people, you know, seem to go out of their way so often to reach out to you? Um, I think it's, you know, that people have that ability to reach out to one another. Um, when After I finished walking across the United States and after studying environment at, at this PH up to a PhD level. And I came away with my idea of what environment was. And it wasn't just about pollution. It wasn't just about, uh, endangered species and loss of habitat. I mean, those things were absolutely important. Climate change was absolutely an important issue global warming, absolutely very important. But what we had seemed to left out of what environment is about was that it's also about people because we are not a part, meaning separate from the environment. We are definitely 
part of the environment. And so our first opportunity to treat the environment in a positive way to understand sustainability is in relationship with each other, with ourselves, with each other, and the place that we live. Mm. And so I tell myself and the people who ask me, um, what can we do in order to make it a better environment? And it's, you know, be kind to one another, you know? And so that's um, where I am now. And that's where I, I hope to be devoting my life into treating myself and each other that way. Mm. You, you met all kinds of people um, of all political stripes, let's say of all stations in life and all that. And in this memoir, there's not a single word of criticism from you toward anybody for, for their beliefs, even if they, even if they're not yours. Why? <laughs> mm. Someone might think an environmentalist, um, you know, activist might be very partisan, but you seem completely even-handed, no matter who you're dealing with. Well, you know, I, I, I certainly have some ideas of what I think needs to happen, but who am I? <laughs> Can I be wrong? Oh no, no, I can't be wrong. Of course I can be wrong. And and I'm sure that I am on on a lot of ways that I, you know, feel about things or think about things. And so I want to stay open so that I can still learn about how things are or how things need to go because I don't know. I could be wrong. And and so can everyone else. But I think we all need to do that. I think we all need to be students and we all need to be teachers. And that's how I try to live my life. Um, you, you decided, as we said, um, to stop riding in cars, taking planes, trains, and automobiles as a result of uh, environmental disaster and oil spill in San Francisco Bay. And you did it as a as a kind of statement about you know, what our dependence on oil was doing to the environment, what we as a society were doing to the environment. But I imagine that you had to confront the logic of ethical choices like that at some point. Okay, so you weren't riding in a car, but, you know, a lot of the people who were helping you out, a lot of the food you were eating, a lot of the system you depended on involved cars. You were using electricity. You weren't opposed to walking into a house with electric lights, you know? Absolutely. So, 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 whenever you make a moral choice like that, am I wrong? There's huge re logical inconsistencies. Yeah. What, what, what did you do with that? That came early on, you know, to understand that while we do things, we don't do them in a vacuum, and that even though I, I didn't ride in 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 motorized vehicles, my friends did, and because they did, it allowed me to do what it was that I was doing. And when my friends came up alongside me and said, John, you know, it's not going to, uh, you know, you're not going to make a difference because, you know, you're just going to be mean more gasoline for us. If I had been a wise person right off, <laughs> I would have said, well, great. If what I'm doing helps you to do what you feel you need to do, then we should be able to support each other. I said that if I had been a wise person <laughs> right off, that's what I would have said. Um, but I mean, when I went to a, a grocery store and I, you know, wanted to get something to eat, I didn't, they just, oh, well, just get the potatoes out for John. Cause those are the only things that were grown here, <laughs> you know? And I would go, Oh, I'm going to the post office. And I put it a letter in. The, it doesn't, they don't get the pony express. John, and, and you know, no, I mean, it goes in a plane, it flies. And, and so all the things that are happening, it allows us, we're all in this together. Mm. And so for me to criticize anyone, I mean, I might like to see changes, but not to say, well, you should stop doing that, or you should do this, or you should do that. Because what we all do 
really affects all of us and we're all part of each other. So getting that and seeing that inner relationship, um, you can get to a place where you understand that the only reason that you're you're able to do what you do is because everyone is doing what they do. Mm. Um, it's been um, quite a few years since you started talking again. It was in 1990... 1990. 1990 that you finally started talking again. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever go silent? For, I have. For a stretch of time? Yeah, I've... I've you know, um, over the years, I've I'd stopped speaking for 10 days or so, and sometimes one or two days. Uh, and sometimes in the community, um, a few years ago, I would have people join in the silence, but still live in the community and still do the things that that we do, but just not speak. And, and that was, I think, a little bit different um, than the silence of going to a monastery or uh, I think the expression of it was a little different. I mean, silence is silence, but just to stay in the community and be silent uh, gives us the opportunity to, to hear some things and other people to experience that as well. When you were not talking all that time that for that great length of time, 17 years and all, um, we we tend to think in language. We tend to think with voices in our head, even if we're not speaking. Did did the voices stop? Did they slow down or go mm. quiet? The arguing stopped. I used to have arguments in my head. I used to replay conversations. Um, oh, he said that. I should have said that. Or I could have said that. She said this. I maybe uh, next time I'm going to say this. And depending on how many conversations I had been having or carrying around, I could get you know pretty worked up. Uh, once I stopped speaking, um, after a while, those conversations went away because I didn't have them. What took their place? Uh, I would say silence, uh, music, and um, listening. Uh, there's a, a paragraph in your book about um, silence, about not speaking, that I'd like you to read if you would. There is something uncompromisingly honest in the experience of silence. It is from silence that all speech, and therefore all myth, begins. Speech is the myth of that which cannot be spoken. Without speech there can be no theory. Without theory there can be no answers. When the world of myth and theory confuses us. Silence is always there, affording us the opportunity not merely to question our assumptions, but to discard them and begin again. So letting go of talk is, is, is letting go of theory. And, and what's life without theory like? I don't know. <laughs> well, let's see. Well, I think maybe maybe to end this this conversation, it might be nice to to stop talking and maybe um, to let some music happen, because you happen to have sitting here the very banjo we've been talking about off and on. This is uh, a composition, my first composition, called uh, "Life's Celebration." Thank you. 
Hey John, when when you uh, when you weren't speaking, but you were signing a lot and using uh, gestures. Mm-hmm. How did you uh, say when you really wanted to say thank you to someone? How did you do it? Well, I'm doing it back at you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. John Francis's book is Planet Walker. It's out from Random House and National Geographic. His nonprofit environmental organization is on the web at planetwalk.org. And by the way, if you're wondering, John does drive a car these days when necessary. I've seen it. It's a Prius. And that's all for the 7th Avenue Project. I'll be back next week. I'm Robert Polly.